Hey, good evening, everybody. Wednesday night, 7.30. Welcome to the Deep Dive Bible Study here on YouTube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Hey, make sure you subscribe to the channel. If you're not already, you should be. Uh, it should be right there below me. Subscribe. Give the beard some love. Hey, we've been talking so far in Romans chapters 1 and 2 that everybody's a sinner. And if everybody's a sinner and the good people are going to be condemned and the bad people are going to be condemned, then what's the point of being good? Maybe that's the question that you have based on Romans 1 and 2. Well, guess what? That's the question that Paul's going to answer right here in Romans chapter 3. So let's get into it here on the Deep Dive, the book of Romans. Romans uh, Deep Dive Bible Study Season 5, Episode 6, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, in the comments below, today's comment question, what's your favorite breed of dog? Why that question? I don't know. I'm preferable to one breed. I'll let you guess it down below as well. But this is the Book of Romans Bible Study, and we are going verse by verse, as we always do on the Deep Dive, through a book of the Bible, and Romans is perhaps the most important one we'll ever do because Romans unpacks the gospel. And so far, we have been only in diagnosis mode. Remember that. Romans 1, verse 18, through Romans 3, verse 20, is all diagnosis. Diagnosis for our real spiritual problem. And we've talked already about the diagnosis, twofold diagnosis of Romans 1, that the bad people are sinners. Romans 2, the good people are sinners. No one is righteous in God's sight. And we talked about how Paul says, God does not show favoritism. Now, we've got a new uh, scene here on the deep end. This is going to be called the Logos Bible software scene. I have a software that helps me immensely study the Bible, and I want to encourage our deep divers to get a version of this software. You can get it, I think, for free, uh, and you can download resources. You pay for the resources that you use, but you can get, I think, the baseline program for free, and they give you a free book every month if you sign up for their uh, email newsletter. Logos.com, check it out. I've been using it since 2000 and, oh, I want to say 10, 2009. It is invaluable. Anyway, new scene, which helps me scroll right through this software uh, with you. And I just, before we get into Romans 3, I want to back up to Romans chapter 2, all the way back up to uh, verse 9, where he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And that's really the big idea here in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that we all stand Remember, at the foot of the cross on level ground, Jew Gentile, God does not show favoritism based on a person's external qualities, not on their genealogical qualities, not on their ancestry, not on their race, not on their gender, not on their skin color. God judges each person according to what they do based on what they know. And uh, this brings me to the first segment of our show today, and uh, we're going to get right into it. We call it what? What it meant. So on the what it meant segment, we go through the text and we say, here's what was the problem that Paul was addressing in the first century to the original context. 
Remember, and you got to go way back to episode one of the season. There was a problem in the Roman church that Paul is going to address as we get into the practical implications of the gospel way off into the future of this season. And that, that problem was that the Jews who were the original Christians were now being outnumbered by the Roman Gentiles and they were kind of like being dwarfed. And so they kind of suffered with this inferiority complex and they wanted to kind of push these people down and was saying, yeah, but you know what? We've got the law and, and we're better than you because we're his chosen people. And you know what? You, you guys were just let in because, you know, you, you were an afterthought. And, and, and every church, and I talked about this in, in one of the weekend weeks we talked, in every church there is that in-crowd and out-crowd syndrome. There's that in-crowd, out-crowd syndrome. Let me know in the comments if you've ever been part of that, where you don't feel like you're really in the church. There's the in crowd, the cool people, or you know, the people that live in the right neighborhood, or the people that dress the right way, or the people that uh, know the Bible better than everybody else, or the people that you know have the big thick study Bible and you don't. You know, the people without the tattoos and the people that do have the tattoos, or or the people who have certain convictions and the others who don't. And so there's always that in crowd and out crowd kind of tension in every church. Well, there was in the first century in Rome, and the Gentiles were being treated like the outcasts by the Jews. And so Paul, being the Jew, who is called the apostle to the Gentiles, is going to be hitting this hard, this spirit hard in the Jews, because they need to remember that God saves them the same way he saves the Gentiles, by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But he's got to do diagnosis, diagnosis, diagnosis. And I have talked about this on this season ad nauseum. It needs to be repeated. The number one problem with evangelism, the number one problem with outreach in every church is that the in crowd wants to stay the in crowd. They, they want to stay important. They want to stay in power. They want to stay in charge. And those dirty out crowd people, we want to keep them at arm's length. Oh, they're sure welcome to come on into our church, but you know what? They're not going to be really involved. And that's not the gospel. The gospel does not play favors. The gospel does not establish in crowd, out crowd. The gospel says everyone's out. Everyone's out. Jesus was in and he went out. He was crucified outside the city, <laughs> right? Hebrews, Hebrews says that. And he brought the outsiders inside through the same door, his shed blood. So we've got to talk about the diagnoses of Romans chapter three, or Romans chapter one, verse 18, all the way to three, verse 20. The diagnosis is the bad news because you can't understand and you can't appreciate the bad news, the good news until you fully comprehend the bad news. Someone once said this, quote, a problem clearly defined is half solved, end quote. I just, I heard that recently somewhere. I don't know where I heard it, but I love it. A problem clearly defined is half solved. That's what Paul's doing. Romans 1, 18 to Romans 3, 20. Paul is clearly defining the problem. And the problem is uh, not your upbringing, not your uh, parents, uh, not your society, not your economy, not your politicians. The problem is sin. So that brings me to the theme. I want to put this up on the screen because this is what it meant. All right. The theme of Romans 1, 18 to 320 is you won't take the cure until you realize you've, you have the disease. You have, sorry, <laughs> sorry for my typo there. Until you realize you have the disease. Okay. The cure is the gospel. The disease is sin. So bad people, good people, level playing ground at the foot of the cross. And as Paul is unpacking these two realities in Romans 1 and 2, 
in his head because he has taught this so often to Jews and to Gentiles. In his head, he already has the questions that are going to come at him. So he's prepared for the questions. And that's where he gets to in Romans chapter 3. So let's get into it. Verse 1, here's what he says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So now let me just tell you what Paul is doing here. He's doing rhetorical questions. He's, he's taking this uh, idea of a straw man standing before him, and he's having a dialogue uh, visually with the Romans with this with this person. And he says, I imagine that your question is, now that I've said that the good people are condemned and the bad people are condemned, the good people, the, the insiders, the Jews are condemned, then what advantage? They get, I guess it doesn't matter then to be good, to, do, to be a good Christian, you know, our, our equivalent would be, I guess it doesn't matter to go to church, right? Um, and remember in Acts chapter, I mean, in Romans chapter 229, he had already talked about this, a true Jew or a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but is not from man, but from God. In other words, it has nothing to do with your religious upbringing, religious heritage, or religious practice. It has everything to do with has your heart been changed by Jesus Christ? Okay. And so the inevitable question then is, well, then I guess then it doesn't matter to be a Jew. And and sometimes we could say this as Christians in our modern vernacular. We could say we could say, well, I guess it doesn't matter if I'm a good Christian or not, because after all. Uh, God has already told me that nothing that I do makes me right with him, right? That could be the inevitable concluding question or concluding thought for a lot of people when they hear the diagnosis stage of Romans, which means everybody's a sinner. Nobody can be righteous by their works. So, okay, since I can't be righteous by my works, I guess I better not try, right? There's no advantage. What's the point of being religious if my religiosity doesn't save me. That's what Paul is saying. Okay, got it? And there are many Christians who fall into this trap and they fall into something called antinomianism. Anti meaning against, nomos meaning law. And so against the law, in other words, we live lawless. We live lawless because it doesn't matter if we obey because we aren't saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus did. Paul's going to really dig into this issue now, going forward from chapter 3, even right in through to chapter 6. And he's going to ask these series of rhetorical questions. Uh, so the answer first to what advantage has the Jew is simple. Verse 2, much. There's a huge advantage to being a Jew. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. Paul does not deny there's value to being Jew, what, uh, Jewish. And Paul does not deny there is value to being a Christian and being upright and following God. What he is denying is that your religious performance does not make you right with God. There is an absolute value to being Jewish, genealogically speaking, because the Jews, sorry, let's go back to this. The Jews had the law. That's what he says, the oracles of God. The, the, the word oracles is a deeper word than just the law. It means, it means the testimony of God. The, 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 the thoughts of God were given not to the Philistines, not to the Hittites or the Jebusites. They were given to the Jews. And Moses, uh, according to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. In fact, let me try this new scene out, if I can here. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. I'm going to try this on the fly. All right, everybody? Acts 7, 38. Watch this. Let's see if this scene works for us. Uh, 
Stephen talking, he says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Sinai with our fathers. He received, this is Moses, he received the living oracles. He received the living oracles of God. And I love that. I love that word, the living oracles. To get to us. So the, the advantage of being a Jew is you have the word of life. You have God's truth. In um, Romans chapter 9, verse 4, he goes on about more of the advantages of the Israelites. He says they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory of God. Remember, many times in, in history, the Jews saw the glory of God. The covenants, what, what covenants are those? The Abrahamic covenant, the uh, Mosaic, the law covenant, the Davidic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, which we talked about last season on the deep end, which was that God would always have his king on the throne through the line of David. That is fulfilled through Jesus. He is the son of David, but that is a promise that the glorious king of the world will come from from the Jews. You see how, how precious these promises are. To them belong uh, the giving of the law, worship, promises, all the promises of the Old Testament, that God would never leave them, that God would never forsake them, that God would always be with them, that God would always bless them, that God would curse their enemies. These are, these are blessings. To them belong the patriarchs. In other words, this godly heritage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. In other words, it doesn't get any better than that. Christ came from them, and he is God over all and blessed forever. And in short, the Jews are tremendously blessed. Now, why am I really digging into this? Do you know why I'm digging into this? Because if you're a Christian, the book of Galatians tells you that you are blessed with the Abrahamic blessing. You have been grafted in to God's family and the blessing of Abraham is on you. So now, now that means something because now that means that adoption is yours. The glory of God is yours. The covenantal promises of God, the giving of, of the law, worship, the promises. The Abraham is now your father. These are, this is your heritage. This is your family. And so what, what advantage does the Jew have? What advantage does the faithful Christian have? Every advantage. Every advantage. And some of you need to receive this word. I'm telling you, before we go any further, you need to receive this word if you are a Christian. Because too many Christians, way too many Christians, they beat themselves down. They tell themselves they're terrible. They've got nothing going for them. Uh, they might as well take their own life or pop pills and just drug out or not try anything. You know, not, not, not try to achieve anything because I'm just a loser from the wrong side of the tracks who's got nothing going from wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> you are blessed with Abraham. You have the Abrahamic blessing on your life. Amen. Okay. We got to go on. Verse three, he says, what if, now this again is another rhetorical question. What if some were unfaithful? Uh, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means. Now, what is he talking about there? What he's talking about there is he's saying, well, if you look at the, if you look at the heritage of Israel, if you look at their history, it ain't good. And it's not good, right? We have the Bible the Old Testament historical books from Exodus onward 
to show us that as much as they were blessed, the Jews repeatedly disobeyed God and, and they were unfaithful. So I guess then having all those things, and this is what he means by does their, does their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, he's saying that the attack could be, well, God gave them all those gifts and all those blessings and all those promises and covenants, but they show the world that is meaningless. They, they quote unquote, nullify the faithfulness of God. Paul says, by no means. He says, let God be true and everyone a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge, when you are, when you judge, I mean, sorry, when you are judged, um, let me first unpack the accusation that we get in our modern Christian vernacular about this same idea that Paul is taking on here in verse three. Here's the modern attack. The unbeliever says, well, I've seen Christians and I've seen them act just as godless as non-Christians and their lives tell me that God really doesn't make a difference. Okay, now does this, now does this text resonate? I'm sure maybe even you've gotten that accusation in your own life. I'm sure somebody has said that to you. Oh, oh, Mr. Christian swearing at work. Oh, oh, Mrs. Goody Two Shoes is is just as bad as that person, right? I, I've worked in the secular realm. Uh, I can think of one story. It is such a benign example, but I can think of one story off the top of my head. I was very young. I was, I think, 22 years old. I was working at a bank. And I said, I don't remember the words that I said, but it was something that was kind of off the cuff. And uh, it, it wasn't a swear. I, maybe it was like a half swear. I don't remember. But I said something to someone in the office and immediately it was, oh, oh, oh. And they used to call me Father Tim because they knew I was a Christian. Oh, Father Tim. Hmm. See, I guess Christians are just the same as non-Christians. So, okay, we all face that. And Paul addresses that. And he says the, the faithfulness of God, in other words, the benefit of God is never nullified by the lives of uh, his people. Never. Because here's what God has done. And, and I want to now let's talk on this last part of the verse, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Um, this is a direct quote from Psalm 51. Now this applies to last year's, last season on the deep end when we talked about David. David sins with Bathsheba, remember? He sins with Bathsheba and then he prays that prayer uh, of repentance and he cries out to God and he has done some things that pagans do. He has murdered a man. He Well, first he lusted. Secondly, he committed adultery. Thirdly, he impregnated a lady. Fourthly, he tried to get it covered up. Fifthly, he killed her husband to get him out of the picture. And then sixthly, he took her to be his wife and went to bed at night as if nothing happened. I mean, this guy did everything that pagans do, right? But he said, but when he's confronted with his sin, he repents. And if you remember from last season in the life of David, he paid extravagantly for that mistake. He paid through the life of uh, two of his sons right off the bat, uh, three of his sons, actually. One son actually killed another. The child that was conceived through Bathsheba dies. Um, all this judgment comes upon him. And what does David say? You're right. That's a direct quote from Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, God, you have judged me rightly. Do you know why? Because I am your servant. And... 
being God's servant and being God's people means that God is going to hold us to a higher level of accountability. I want to give you another verse that, that backs me up here. Amos, Amos chapter three, verse two. Amos, not a book that we go to very often, but he says this, God speaking to his people, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Oh, oh, that, that kind of takes some of the shimmer off being chosen, doesn't it? Yeah, we're chosen. Okay, the Jews were chosen, but they were therefore held to a higher account for their sins. This is what Jesus meant when he says in Luke 20, 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. That if you are a Christian and you, and, and, and you, you might have a hard time listening to this for a second, but it's, it's good for you. That if you stray, God is going to punish you. He is going to discipline you. Uh, Hebrews 12 talks about this. Uh, it's no punishment is, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it yields a peaceful harvest of righteousness for those who are trained in it. Okay. Uh, God is going to hold his people to a higher account than those who are not his people. And this is also a symbol of the love of God. I bring you back to Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. In fact, let me see if I can do that here uh, on the Lagos cam. How about that? Hebrews 12 verse 6. And what does it say? It says the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that his father does not discipline? If you are left with that discipline in which you've all participated, then you're illegitimate, illegitimate disciplines and not sons. And, and uh, then he goes down and he says, uh, verse 10, about our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seen best to them, but God disciplines for, us our for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That God's discipline is a sign, back to verse six, that he loves you. And when he holds you to a higher account, okay, when he holds you to a higher account for your sins, it is a sign that he loves you. Amen. Uh, okay, that's what he's talking about so far in this passage. Let's continue on with the text, verse five. But, he says, if our unrighteousness serve, now he's speaking again, hypothetically. So you gotta realize this is a, a way of teaching that Paul is entering into. It's a back and forth. And so he's speaking for the other guy now. He's saying, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could judge the world? How, God, how could God judge the world? And what he's saying here is that there was this argument that was made by, by the religious people. The argument was, if we show God's word is true by sinning, then let's sin more. In fact, he's, he's, he's even saying that even clearer in the next passage, verse 7, look at this. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, he says their condemnation is just. Judge is just. Okay, lost to unpack. But let me unpack it slowly. The argument was made against Paul's preaching of the gospel, and it is still made by some Christians even today, that since even the good people are condemned before God and are not righteous in their works, and we cannot be made right with God through our works, and God is proven righteous because of even our failures, well, 
let's just sin because when we sin, that shows how good God is, right? There's, there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people who think, well, you know, my sin just shows how good of a forgiver God is, so I'm just going to sin some more so that God could be proven to be just that much more forgiven, forgiving. <laughs> no, these people are doing what the human heart loves to do. We love to find excuses for sinning. We do. It's in our DNA to find a loophole to do what we want. It's in our DNA. And, and Paul says, some people are accusing us. They're slandering, slanderously accusing us of saying that, that, that let's do evil, that good may come. Let's sin that God might forgive. And he's going to dig into this even more as we go down into Romans chapter six. Okay. Let, let us sin that grace may abound. No, no, that is not how we are to take the righteousness of God. Again, because the righteousness of God is not a moral performance, okay? The righteousness of God is a gift righteousness given to us by faith in Jesus Christ that changes our hearts and brings us back to him in right relationship so that we are not saved to do what we want. We are saved to do what he wants. Now, we're going to get into the meat of the order, as they like to say. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are, and this is the key phrase we want to lean into here, are under sin. Okay, meat of the order. Meat of the order. <laughs> Baseball reference for this is where you really get to the, the beefy part of the text. Sin is not something that we do. It is, it is a power that is over all of us. So often, I, I, I talk about this regularly with my church, that there is Sunday school Christianity. Sunday school Christianity is, uh, you know, don't do bad things. Avoid bad behaviors. Don't be like them. That's Sunday school Christianity. Sunday school moral improvement behavior. That is not <laughs> that is not the heart of God's work in us and for us in Christ Jesus. We are under sin. And Paul is laying the groundwork for a, for a main theme of Romans, the bondage of our hearts. Sin is personified here, isn't it? We are under sin. It's like sin is our master. Sin is our, before Christ, it, he is our warden. We are locked in prison John Stott says about this text, he says that sin is a cruel tyrant uh, who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Sin is on top of us, weighs us down, and is a crushing burden. And Paul will later talk about this in Romans chapter 6. It's, he's he's going to refer to the realm of sin and then the realm of Christ or those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And this is one of the most important theological truths that we are about to impact. We don't just commit sin. We are under the power of sin apart from Jesus Christ. This is going to help you understand your world, Christian. Because when you look at your world and you look at unbelievers and you look at how they act, you can get confused. You can get like, what on earth? That's the power of sin. 
the power of sin is that strong. There is a force. There is a spiritual force over the human race that propels us, that, pro- that compels us to disobey God. It is the realm of sin. Now, the next passage, Paul is going to really unpack something, a doctrine that is so important for us as Christians. He says, as it is written, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Remember that phrase right there. No one seeks for God. All have sinned and turned aside. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, just take notice of all the quotation marks in these, these verses because what Paul is doing is he is quoting verses after verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament, from the, from the Bible of the Jews, okay, to prove that no one is righteous and no one is good and no one is seeking after God. Hear that again. No one is seeking after God. You say, oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like the faith that I came to believe. <laughs> okay, I want to introduce you. It's time for some doctrine. Doctrine time, if you will. And here is the doctrine. Are you ready for it? Mankind is totally depraved. Mankind is totally, uh, we call this total depravity. And it is a theological truth in the scriptures that mankind is totally depraved. Now, let me first off alleviate some of the twinge in your heart right now. Total depravity does not mean that man is utterly depraved, as in we are all as wicked as we can possibly be all the time. That, that's, of course, that's not true. There is plenty of evidence to the contrary. There are good doctors who are Muslims. There are good doctors who are atheists. There are people who do good in this world who are not Christians. Total depravity does not refer to utter depravity. Secondly, it doesn't mean that mankind is totally useless. No, God uses man for enormous good. He uses both believers and unbelievers for for enormous good. But we have got to understand what total depravity is if we're going to embrace the cure. And here's what it means. Are you ready? I'm going to put this on the screen. Total depravity means there is no part of you that isn't affected in some way by the sinful nature. There is no part of you that isn't affected in some way by the sinful nature. No part of you. So I got a physical illustration. I think this is our first one on uh, this season of the, uh, of the deep dive. <laughs> I, I got a little test tube beaker here. Okay, how many remember these from high school? And I want to just say this represents your, your life, you. This, let's just say this is you. Okay, now it's clear and I can see through it somewhat. I mean, it's, it's obscured, but I can see somewhat through it. 
This is sin. This is what Adam gave to us. And here's how sin, sin is not something that you do. Sin is something that is over you and is pervasively part of every, every part of you. Like this food coloring. And it is, it is black, you will see. I don't know if you can see clearly on that screen. I'm sorry. It is black. Take my word for it. It says black. If I just drop oh, just a couple of drops, watch this. Four, five. Let's do five. And watch. Watch the water. In just a matter of moments, it is darkened. And it is getting more and more pervasively darkened. Look at it. Isn't that cool? I didn't I did not even practice this beforehand. So you you have to see that this is what the picture is of of total depravity in the human heart. There is not a part of this water now that has not been tainted by the food coloring. And likewise, for you, there is not a part of you that has not been tainted by this, this concept of sin, which means, now hear me, your personality has been tainted by sin. Your thoughts, your self-image, how you think about yourself has been tainted by sin. You say, I don't have a good self-image. No, you're a sinner. Oh, I don't have a winning personality. No, actually, you're just a sinner. <laughs> oh, my motivations are sometimes skewed. No, 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 you're a sinner. You know that you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons? And you know what that is? That's sin. <laughs> Listen, the question could be really asked. The question could be really explored. Is it possible to be able to do a truly selfless thing? And I would argue, and I think Paul would make this argument, that according to Scripture, no. There is going to be some selfish root to everything that we do. Look, even the atheists believe this. Richard Dawkins believes in the selfish gene. That's, that's what's made America progress. Oh, not America, but mankind progress. The selfish gene. And even good things come from the selfish gene. That's their argument. They're, they're actually agreeing with scripture. Yes, that's right. People do good for their own good. I'll, I'll, I'm going to buy them a big gift. And hopefully Christmas time, they'll get me a big gift. I'm going to be nice to them so that they'll give me the promotion. Well, I'm going to show them some appreciation so that when I need help, they'll be there. That's not selfless. That's self-serving. And it comes into the church. It comes into the church. Oh, I want, I want to serve the Lord. But there's a lot of people who say, I want to serve the Lord, but they only want to serve the Lord in very visible places. They only want to serve the Lord on stage. They want to serve the Lord when people take notice of them. They only want to serve the Lord when they can get clapped. Or, or, or back in the day when pastors used to raise money for buildings and they would have to put a plaque on the thing saying, donated by so-and-so. Why the plaque? Why the little sign saying that you did that? What are you looking for? You're looking for recognition. So you're not actually doing it selflessly. You're doing it completely selfishly because you are totally depraved. So I, I was thinking about this. This applies to your emotions. Your emotions are tainted by sin. This applies to anxiety. This applies to depression. Anxiety is not some imperial force that, that hunts you down and, and takes you captive. Anxiety is a fruit of the sinful nature that is over you. The sinful condition is over you. Anxiety is a lack of trust that God is going to provide for you, cares for you, loves you, that your future is secure. 
That's where anxiety comes from. Depression is not just some chemical issue in your brain. It's not. It's rooted in a sinful tendency to believe the worst is ahead. This is where Friedrich Nietzsche gets nihilism because we're sinners. So we're going to deteriorate. Everything eventually is going to be completely destroyed. We're headed to dystopia. This is modern American uh, political jargon. Climate change. Uh, the world is going to burn up. And you ever notice how it keeps getting shorter? It was 12 years. No, now it's eight years. No, now it's six years. Because why? Because even how we see the future is tainted by sin. Sin is is the rejection of God from whom all good things come. And this is why it's important to study the Bible verse by verse. Because you got to see it. So let's go through this slowly. This verse, because again, meet of the order. Verse 10, none is righteous. So I, I know some good people, Pastor. Are, are, are you telling me they're not righteous? Yeah, they're not righteous. Uh, uh, there's something called common grace. This is another doctrine. Common grace, which is that God, Jesus says that your heavenly Father causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's common grace. Good people and bad people both experience good from God. And so because there are some unrighteous people who experience good from God, they will do good because they've gotten good. But it doesn't make them righteous. There is none righteous. And we love to judge ourselves by other people's badness. That's what we do. You know what's funny is when it comes to money, we're always judging ourselves by people who have more than us. Well, I'm not rich. Look at how much money they have. But when it comes to morality, we're always judging ourselves by people who have less morality than us. It's kind of funny that it works that way. And I think it's because what we want to do is we want to justify that we're good enough to get more money. I really think that's what it is. And again, that's the selfish gene. That's the self. That's the tainted total depravity of sin. Jesus said, you got to be perfect. Here's the litmus test. Here's the standard. Perfection. Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's go back to the text. There is no one, look at this, who seeks for God. No one's looking for God. Now, this one trips people up left, right, and center because they like to say, well, I, I searched for Jesus, Pastor. I, I came to church. I, I found Jesus. I mean, <laughs> modern Christian vernacular is so disconnected from biblical truth. It's not funny. I found Jesus. No, you didn't. He found you. God does not play hide and seek. We do. God does not play hide and seek. We do. Genesis chapter 3, Adam's first word. I was afraid. I heard your voice. And I, and I, and I hid myself because I was naked. It was God who searched for them after they sinned, not them who searched for God. They ran, God searched. Jesus is not lost and Jesus is not hiding. We are hiding from him. We are running from him and he is the one. The son of man comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Matthew 19, verse 10. You did not search for Jesus. He searched for you. And uh, the people who say, well, I searched for God and I found him. Here's what I want to propose. People don't search for God. They search for relief. Take the prodigal son. The prodigal son in Luke 15. He runs from the father. He disobeys the father. He rejects the father. He takes the father's goods and spends it on wild living and prostitutes. Okay? He never thinks about going back home. Not for one second until what happens? Until he runs out of money. If he never ran out of money, 
and never ended up in that pig pen, he never would have thought of going back to the Father. Fact. People who search for God are not searching for God. They are searching for relief. They are, Thomas Aquinas talks about this. He, he says that when we see people searching for such things as truth, peace in mind, eternal life, or happiness, they are searching for relief from their guilt because guilt is a human condition, a, a universal human condition. Everyone feels guilt. Um, you could be searching for the benefits of God and not actually be searching for God. That's tweetable, by the way. <laughs> you could be searching for the benefits of God and not actually searching for God. That's, that's what uh, the, the, um, the nation of Israel was doing in the book of Judges. Remember the book of Judges? They had this cycle of disobedience, enslavement, crying out for deliverance, and they would be delivered. And God would send them a judge to deliver them from their own stupid decisions. And every time they seek for God, they are not seeking for God. They are seeking for what God can do for, him, for them, save them from the mess that their sins made. Okay, we've got to continue or I'll never get done with this te uh, text. Verse uh, 12, they have all turned aside and together they have become worthless. That That's just community is involved in our depravity. No one does good, not even one. And then he gets into this uh, kind of picture of how we corrupt ourselves. And notice that it starts with the throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive uh, the venom of, of asp is a viper is under their lips. Our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Then it moves to what we do, our feet, where we go, uh, quick to shed blood, their paths, ruins and ministry, the way of peace they have not known. And then finally, the condition here of their heart is there is no fear of God. Uh, that, that, that's an incredible portrait of the human condition. And if you think about it in our cult culture right now, we have these amplifying devices that give us the ability to curse everybody to, I'm going to clear my notifications so I can put my phone. There we go. We have these amplification devices to curse everybody, don't we? And we just go after others and we attack others and we sit on our little judgment perches and we say, look at these evil people. Look at those evil people. I know what's right. They know what's wrong. How dare they live like that? And then we just start cursing and cursing and cursing and attacking and, and spreading poison as we tear others down rather than realizing that we are under sin. We are all under sin. We are trapped. That's why you can't change people. Listen to me, married people. You can't change your spouse, can you? Have you tried? I'm sure you have. You can't change them. You can try to change them, but you can't. They, they are under sin as well, just like you. We got to go on. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now he moves from under sin to under the law. So there's two things that are moving against us. Sin in the sin nature and the depravity of man, and then the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, when we hear the law, we shut up because the law shuts our mouths. This is why many times in the scriptures, when Jesus spoke, people said, and it said people could say nothing else. They, they couldn't say anything else to him because he shut their mouths when he spoke. Like I, the most famous example of this is John 8. When Jesus is met with the woman Caught in the act of adultery, they say, hey, Moses' law says to stone her. What do you say? And he says, all right, how about, how about this? Who's without sin? 
go and cast the first stone. And and he, the Bible says he gets on on his hands and knees and he writes. He gets on his knees and he writes in the sand. And I always wonder what he wrote. But I think what he wrote is um, John committed adultery last Wednesday, and and Steve over there stole from his company two weeks ago. And you know, <laughs> you know I don't know. That's just my imagination playing with me. But what he does is he silences their mouths because he's righteous and they realize they're not. And if we go on, and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge. And now look at this. More, more doctrine time. Are you ready? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here we go. The uses of the law. We're going to talk about these. There, there are three, some say two, but there are three uses of the law. And use number one in the law of the law in the Bible is to bring us to a knowledge of sin. Pastor, I thought that the law was there to tell us what to do. No, believe it or not. If you read Romans, you learn how to read the Bible. I've told you this several times on this season of the, of the deep dive. You learn to read the rest of the Bible when you learn Romans. And Romans is unpacking something so powerful, so important. It, it's so helpful to us. The law is there to teach us what sin actually is. The law exposes our spiritual disease, our spiritual brokenness. The law exposes something. We cannot do what we want. The law shows us that, that we are trapped. Uh, I, want, I want to go to the Bible camp because this is important. Okay, let's flip over to Romans chapter 7. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, that is under the law, look at this, our sinful passions, look at this, oh, this is so so important, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Do you see what he's saying right there? Because this is a game changer if you receive it. This is a game changer. The law brings us to a knowledge of sin. Guess what else it does? According to Romans 7 verse 5. The law arouses sin. Every parent knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because the moment that you tell a child, don't do that, they do it. The moment, anybody ever try reverse psychology? Don't clean your room. I command you not to. My wife and I have done that several times. It doesn't work. But to know what you shouldn't do, it's like tractor beam. I want to do it. That's because you are under the law and you are under sin. This is a cosmic condition. Oh, it is so important that you get this. It is so important because until we rightly identify the problem, we will never truly find the solution. Okay, verse 31. But now, and this is the where we're going to end today. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the law is pointing to Christ. The prophets are pointing to Christ. And I could take you through verse by verse in the Old Testament of how that is true. We might do that some in this uh, season of the deep end. But verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What 
does Jesus say? We talked about this already in John chapter 6. What do we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, believe on the one whom he has sent. Our job is to believe in him. For better, for worse, no matter what's going on, no matter what we feel, we believe in Jesus. That's the cure. We believe in Christ. It's been bad news today, right? It's been bad news, a lot of bad news. But this is how you introduce the good news. What Paul is doing here is masterful in that he is laying the heavy hand of the law and sin on all people so that we are desperate for the answer. And the answer is Jesus. Until you get to the end of yourself, my friend, you will never look to Jesus. Until you... Um, realize that you can't break the addiction. You can't get free from the anxiety. You can't get out of depression. You can't love others genuinely and selflessly. Until you get to that point, you will constantly be in this try harder cycle of making your life better and it will fail. The solution is to have the Holy Spirit come in you once Jesus Christ comes and cleanses you from all of your sin. Then you become a temple of the Holy Ghost wherein God dwells. So, diagnosis. Your disease is not what people have done to you. It is not what you did necessarily wrong. It's not what others think of you. It's not what failures you've had. It's not what disappointments you've faced. Your disease is the sinful condition that the law exposes that shows that you can't, you can't live the way you should. And everybody who's ever made a New Year's resolution knows this is 100% true. Let's get into what it means. I mean, sorry, let's get into why it matters. Why it why it matters. Okay. Um, why it matters is because we are identifying some truth. And, and, and the truth is that we are in prison. We are locked up. As Galatians 3.22 says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, that's the human condition apart from Christ. Let me, let me unpack a couple of things from Romans 3, verse 1 to 20. Number one, sin is something that corrupts everyone. Sin has a power over us. Our problems are not first social, they are cosmic. Let me stop there for a second. Our problems are, first, are not first social, they are cosmic. Why do I say that? Because this is the argument that our culture is having right now. We need social justice. N no, we need justice. We need Christ who brought the justice of God to us. Oh, no, no, we need equity. No, the equity is a fable. There's no such thing as equity. There will never be equity. There was always going to be someone who has more than someone else. That is not, that is an, equity is an impossibility. And this now leads me to another discussion. Oh, we need an economic system that works for everyone. No matter what economic system any culture embraces, someone's going to get left out. Someone's going to get more. Someone's going to have, someone's going to have not. Check out socialism, check out communism, check out capitalism, check out all the, all and everything in between. There's always going to be somebody with more and somebody with less. 
In socialism, it's usually the government with more and the people with less. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, the problem that we face is not social. In other words, uh, you, you can't fix it through society. You can't fix it through programs. You can't fix it through education. We have more knowledge and less wisdom than ever before in this country. Romans chapter 1, in their thinking, they became fools. I shared with my church on the Sunday, there was an MD published article uh, at healthline.com. The title of the article was, can men get pregnant? Are you flipping kidding me? Can men get pregnant? No. But the answer, according to this MD, this, this educated person is, yes, they can, because they pretend to be women. And this is, this is society pendulum swinging to all the possible answers. Oh, it's education. No, it's, it's economic system. Uh, no, it's racial equity. Uh, no, it's uh, economic equity. No, it's climate equity. No, it's whatever. And that, that will always be, we are always going to have a problem for as long as we are human because our problem is not social, it is cosmic. Let me move on. Our sin separates us from God and the search for God. No one is seeking after God. That all adds up to this last line. We need far more than behavioral modification. We need deliverance from bondage. We need deliverance from bondage. We need God to deliver us through his son, Jesus Christ. We are enslaved. So let's talk about why it all matters. Okay, why it matters. Boom. Here's why. Because of what I said in the very beginning. You won't take the cure until you realize you have the disease. You won't take the cure until you realize you have the disease. Okay? And the disease is sin. Romans 3, 1. We do not seek God. God seeks us. He is the seeker who came to save us. Number two, we cannot save ourselves. God saves us. Number three, we cannot get peace. God gives us his peace. And we're going to get to that in Romans 5. And all of this happens, listen, summing it all up, at the cost of his son. Jesus paid for this. He came to seek. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to bring us back to God. As it says in Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Diagnosis is over, guys. Diagnosis is over. I am actually kind of happy because this is episode six. <laughs> and all we have been basically talking about, with the exception of episode one, which was the introduction of Romans, is how bad our condition really is. But guys, if you don't talk about this, you'll never turn to the true Savior. And now we turn the page, and Paul is going to turn the page to unpacking what Jesus has done for us and how it sets us free. And, and then we're going to get to that glorious moment in Romans 8 where the Holy Spirit is the star of the show in our sanctification and in our regeneration. And he makes us into a new person. I can't wait to get there, but you're going to have to hang tight because there's a long way to go. And going verse by verse through the Bible is such a blessing. And it's a blessing for me to bring this content to you. Follow me over at timhatchlive.com. All of the social media accounts, timhatchlive, forward slash, or at. And as I said last night, hey, help the channel. Support us. Buy some stuff. Buy the Tumblr. Buy a t-shirt. Buy my book, Move, Entering into God's Promises for you. And... Of course, as always, 10 Questions with Tim is the first Thursday of every month. You can send those questions in now. Ask at timhatchlive.com. I would 
highly recommend that you get those questions in early because we are more more and more viewers are tuning in and more and more questions are coming in every single month and we run out of time. We run out of, we run out of questions every single month. Guys, thanks so much. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already hit that subscribe button and give the beard some love. Hit the like button. Let me know in the comments what's your favorite dog breed or guess what my favorite dog breed is. God bless you guys. See you next time. No, no. See you Tuesday night next week for the deep, the deep end. God bless you.